Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Here you are, embarking on the Hertie adventure. An important step in your own journey, no doubt. You might have very different motivations why you chose Hertie. You also might have your own reasons why you pick the MIA over the MPP, why you actually go for a PhD, why you chose to engage in our EMPA program. But my guess is that all of you have something in common. My guess is that you care about one, if not about several, societal challenges. By societal challenge, I mean a social problem that is of public concern. Well, you certainly can pick from a range of societal challenges these days. Some of these challenges go back to problems that stubbornly persist. I'm thinking about inequality here. Some have resurfaced in new ways. Modern forms of slavery, for example. Others get amplified simply by how we live our lives. Climate change, for example. Ironically, it is often those achievements we celebrate most technological advances, or discoveries in outer space that create unintended and undesirable consequences and lead to new challenges. It might not be surprising for you that actually in our International Security Center, we build up expertise on cybersecurity because it's certainly one of these new challenges that have arisen. Now, in theoretical terms, we do know a lot about these problems. We describe them as wicked problems, as complex, as interconnected, they never come in isolation, and their root causes can be traced back to cultural and historical legacies, to the societal fabric, to economic regimes, to political screw-ups, and so forth. And yet, if I put myself in your shoes, It is only fair to ask, why have we made so little progress? And trust me, it is not for lack of trying. We seem to have plenty of recipes of the right and easy solutions. But why do they not work? What holds us back? Well, we are typically very quick when it comes down to find out who are the culprits of who holds us back. And it's not surprising that the culprits are always from the other camp. For civil society, it's business. For business, it's social activists. For politicians, it's the ideology of the other party. For us researchers, academics, 
It's the advocates of the other paradigm. It's the linear thinking for those that adhere to systems perspectives. For sociologists, anthropologists, it's neoclassical and orthodox economic thinking. And for the economists, well, for them seems to exist only one paradigm. Uh, the program that you started yesterday or today will allow you to explore, understand different perspectives, to recognize the assumptions underpinning them, and to reflect upon potential biases in those. Now, my suggestion is that you do not ignore these biases, but recognize them and reflect how they affect possible approaches to tackle societal challenges. Henrik mentioned it, my research lies at the nexus of organizations, institutions, and societal challenges. I'm interested in the transformative mechanisms that affect societal change and in nurturing alternative forms of economic organizing to ensure societal progress. Today, I'd love to share a few questions that we, my fellow research travelers, and some of them are here in the room, Christian Silos, and I ask. Let's get started with an easy societal challenge. Actually, it's, we call it this societal challenge a grand societal challenge because it's wicked, it's nested, and it's inequality. Inequality manifests in very different ways. And let me, for the purpose of illustrate the wickedness of this, take you to a rural village in India where we conducted our research, actually multiple villages. We know, especially from social anthropologists, that multiple categories of inequality not only persist in those villages, we're talking about gender, caste, class, but they also intersect and they become reified every day simply by the interaction, by the behavior, how people interact in rural villages. What I'm trying to say is, even if we call inequality a grand societal challenge, it manifests locally in small-scale society. So we also better understand how we can address inequality where it matters locally. Now, the challenge is certainly that these persistent patterns of entrenched inequality are hard to break apart especially because if you go to one of those villages, not many have an interest to change the status quo. The elite for sure has no status quo, but also if you talk to members of a lower caste or Dalits, many of them believe in their next life, they will have another opportunity. So how can we actually move today from unequal access to opportunity to more equal access to opportunity? Certainly a puzzle that has occupied policymakers, researchers for a long time. What uh, Christian, Miriam, and I did, we actually studied one intervention in depth with an organization we followed for 15 years 
it's, it's an organization called Grumbikas. What they are about is fighting entrenched patterns on inequality. Well, they have not developed the intervention I'm going to talk about. The intervention is about water and sanitation right from the beginning. It took them time to develop. They also learned carefully what we know from existing programs. And the way we characterize these ex existing programs, you can think about them as social engineering programs or participatory uh, projects. All of them actually have their flaws. What these organizations did is to combine elements from both, from a top-down and the bottom-up approach. Not going into mo uh, uh, much depth, but the idea is to address patterns of inequality by bringing water and sanitation to rural villages, by requiring every household in the village to be part of it before they start the project. You understand what that means, consensus building across households, uh, gender, caste, income uh, classes. The intervention has many different facets where you say, well, isn't that typically what the World Bank would do, insisting that there is a governance body on board? Yes. But the, the intervention has many other participatory approaches uh, as well. So for example, the richer households need to subsidize lower. Again, just to remember, the organization promises running water and sanitation to a village with the idea to actually fight entrenched patterns of inequality. Water is the one thing everyone cares in a village. Why? It goes back to what we heard, because it's the number one uh, factor uh, that uh, ensures uh, health, waterborne diseases. Now, so our task was to understand how can be such a program become an organizing tool to move us from unequal access to opportunity to more equal access uh, to opportunity. How we actually call this engine for transformation is scaffolding. And you will see in a second what are the underlying mechanisms that constitute scaffolding. The idea is to move a village from persistent patterns of interaction to new patterns of interaction, an alternative social order building up. And that is really at the core of this transition phase, three mechanisms, mobilizing resources, and I'm not talking just about uh, material resources, economic resources, mobilizing local norms, tradition, think about the change here is happening in sanitation. Villages leverage institutions, norms from another domain, from marriage, for example, exogamy, that you have to marry your daughter to another village, and come up with campaigns, no toilet, no bride, in order to actually mobilize. Stabilizing, at very many moments in time, the right governing, governance, mechanisms, ensuring that the program that everyone cares, water and sanitation, 
is governed by men, women, lower caste, higher caste households, but also allowing for sanctioning mechanisms if someone in the village is still deviating and is actually practicing open defecation. And finally, and that was actually the most important um, or surprising mechanism that um, people typically sh shy away, the concealing part. Remember, the objective of the organization is to change patterns of entrenched inequality. No one in the village wanted that. If you go to village, say like, here we are, we help you to change inequality, they say, out of here. But Everyone is interested in the running water. So basically, as you implement the water and sanitation pro uh, project, in the background, you already build up a social order that can potentially become an alternative way of uh, how people interact. Now, this is a, a research that found incredible um, interest by people actually in the World Bank. Uh, many of you know the graduation programs. Uh, sometimes it's, it's actually show the obvious in new ways that helps people to overcome their own paradigms. So that is one example where studying an organization, what they're doing for a long time, in our case for 15 years, helped us to come up with a better insight what could be these engines for transformation. Now, Gram Vikas, the World Bank, uh, uh, Gateset here in, in Germany, they all are now what we call participants in a field of practice that we call social innovation. One of the objectives of our work is actually to also hold up red flags in this field of practice, to challenge persuasive myth, for example, in this field of practice. Let me use the case of innovation that we worked on also for quite some time. You know the gospel. Those of you who actually have written grant proposals, you know. If you put in the word innovation, your chances to get the grant from a foundation to implement a social change project increases significantly. Innovation Everyone loves innovation. So the, 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 the actually the, the interesting thing is they, uh, innovation is associated with um, a magic success factor. But our point is that innovation is not the holy grail. If you think about how impact is created, and by impact I mean making progress on a social problem, it is has a lot to do with blood, sweat, and tears, with the hard work, the boring work, the everyday work. So, in a, so innovation might be overrated. What we also often do is we undervalue the importance of failed innovation. Keep in mind, we're talking here about an area where we haven't been able to come up with a solution, so a lot of uncertainty. You need to fail and learn from failure in order to actually make progress. So failure is an opportunity to learn. And finally, we often underappreciate under the difficulty of innovation. This is, for example, 
the innovation process, and I deliberately focus your eye, uh, your attention to innovation as a process, not the gloomy, interesting, the, the glancy product and service that comes out. If you look at innovation as a process, it looks like a roller coaster. This is indeed the innovation process of Grambikas, the organization that I just studied. It's ups and downs. And if you approach an innovation process with a learning attitude, trust me, you will be much better off dealing with those downs here. Now, again, you take the perspective of an organization. If you engage in innovation, it means an investment. You might or might not end up with this new product and new service. What brings you then to create impact? For us, this was an opportunity to actually connect to typically isolated discussions in the field of practice. We either love innovation or we love scaling. From the perspective of an organization carrying out the work addressing societal challenges, these two processes are very distinct, but they need to hang together. They are very distinct because you might need different people to do innovation work and scaling work. But they need to hang together in order to create impact. And by, by scaling, I don't just mean more in terms of quantity. I specifically mean the tinkering with quality uh, here to make uh, the intervention better. One of the, the slogans in the book that uh, Christian and I have written is, if you don't know how to scale, do not innovate. Because only if you will go to the green zone, you understand your problem space really well and you become better in innovation. Similarly, if you're not willing to learn, do not innovate. Now, how innovation and scaling hang together differs from organization to organization. There is not one boilerplate best, best off. There are different innovation archetypes. The first one here, Gramvikas, I mentioned, they had many failures along the road. This is a group of students that started kind of with a big ambition, we want to fight inequality in, in, in Odisha. Well, after many rounds of failures, including land irrigation, to, uh, to help farmers uh, irrigate the land with the idea that they then share the land with the poor. You can imagine what happened. Uh, land was irrigated, harvest goes up, no land was shared, right? Many of those failures uh, that helped them to understand actually how communities, how, how inequality operates in Odisha. They also stumbled on a on an intervention related to biogas. They were the master of biogas in a very short period of time that allowed them to go to 500 villages. You would argue big success. For them, they actually decided to ab abandon that project or spin it off 
it still lives on, but not under there, because it didn't allow them to actually do what they are wanted to do, fighting inequality. But all these engagement with the local communities and understanding the problem spaces made them realize that everyone cares about water, and water was the entry to actually develop an initiative that the world looks at as a water and sanitation initiative, but in the end, it's one that helps to fight inequality. Now, the Aravind Eye Hospital is uh, the largest eye hospital in the world. They only do innovation when they run into a bottleneck. So, for example, when their intraocular lenses that they got donated for 10 years, when that donation dried out, they set up their own manufacturing lab, and they are now one of the market leaders in producing intraocular lenses for cataract surgery. Brock, the largest NGO in the world, they care about transforming the life of a woman in a rural village in Bangladesh. They will uh, carry out all different pilots in education, in in, in health, in uh, human rights, pilot them. Once they work, they scale it out in 16 different, uh, 60 different villages they are operating in. But not all of uh, the social innovators, not all of you are going to create a BRAC with, I don't know how many, hundreds and hundreds of thousand employees. Some of you want to be smaller. Well, Waste Concern, a Ford organization that we studied, there are two engineers. They're incredibly good in developing technical solutions to turn waste into resources. What they do, they develop the technology, patent it. There's no need to have a patent, but by patenting it, they make sure that someone in Sri Lanka can actually use it, use it in exactly the way that it delivers the impact that it's supposed to deliver. Now, these are all nice, interesting stories and archetypes, but what we really also found out in working in this field of practice is there's a lack of communication. The organizations that get funds talk to those that give funds, but ultimately there's not much understanding of those who give funds about the local realities. So what we started to do is also developing what we call diagnostic. These are tools that allow the organizations that are busy in their day-to-day -to, -day to reflect upon themselves, but also forge into a more meaningful dialogue with those that support them. Now, one of the, the diagnostics that we developed, and Christian really gets the credit for, for that, is what we call innovation pathologies. These are those factors that derail an organization from a productive path from the investment innovation towards scaling and impact. Now, there are some generic pathologies that you never get started because you simply you are not born as an innovative organization. Or too many bad ideas get pushed because you have a, a, a founder who wakes up every morning with 10 new ideas and they always kind of uh, divert you from actually getting to the green zone. Or you stop too early because funding dries out or all of a sudden, uh, we had that a couple of years ago in Germany, the only money you get is if you work with refugees, but you are also already halfway through in developing another intervention. You have to stop earlier. Or you stop too late. You get a big uh, chunk of money from a large foundation, I'm not naming any, but some of the foundations, they actually only give you big pockets, 
you know that it is not going to anywhere, and yet you don't stop it early enough. And finally, you do insufficient scaling because you become lazy or you become the hero of everything and you don't push hard enough. You never really explore the green zone. Or you innovate again too soon because this grant proposal promises that you actually do innovation again. No organization is free of pathologies. This is simply a tool to actually open openly and deliberately speak about it. This is a tool that we developed out of our research. It works with ministries, it works with for-profit companies, it works across the different sectors. Again, diagnostics as tools for communication. Here at the Hertie School, we also use it in the classroom. Now, we talked about organizations, the field of practice, Let's move on to a final point and think about how my research, our research, can inform what seems now to become a new uh, field of policy. Uh, I typically like to think about informing policy in my research, especially when it comes down to these uh, alternative ways of uh, uh, organizing for society as disciplined exploration. I use the case of a, a project that started out also with the generous support of the uh, European Union where together with my colleagues we were able to develop a method where we get, get to the hidden population of social enterprises, not just the ones that are uh, typically associated with the label. We uh, developed a comparative uh, research basis across nine countries, over a thousand social enterprises. And uh, I just put up the numbers here so that you see this is not to be neglected. I mean, we are talking about in this one year when we surveyed them, this is, by the way, a panel survey, they uh, employed 500,000 employees, served more than 800 million beneficiaries, 6 billion of revenues, 70 million of surplus. Now, some of the emerging patterns. Obviously, we do this research to inform policymaking. In this case, it was also a policymaking at the EU level, but also to think about what are the next steps for us on the scholarly domains. Now, clearly emerging, there's not one size that fits all. Striking variations when it comes down to, for example, employees in Sweden, they are very small, uh, seven uh, people median, to the UK where it's, you could argue it's a more professionalized sector, 24. Interestingly enough, uh, the volunteers, uh, do these social enterprises um, rely on volunteers, striking differences. The only country that they really rely on volunteers is actually China, a little bit in Romania, but in all the other countries, uh, not much a volunteering sector argument. One form doesn't fit all. Uh, very often we think about they must be not-for-profit, right? And we study them as not-for-profit. Quite frankly, social enterprises do care less about what's the form available. They want to carry out their work and they make do 
what form is there. So in many cases, they actually develop models where they have a, a not-for-profit arm and a for-profit arm. They cannot wait for legislators to give them the ideal legal form. They are inherently social. The, the number one measure they use to, to measure their impact is number of beneficiaries served. They do uh, also attend to the needs, the local needs, societal challenges in what they're doing. Differences in Russia, for example, you find uh, a significantly higher number of uh, initiatives working on women and elderly. Gives you an idea. Perhaps they are left out of the, the public services in China, remote rural areas, for example. Now, in the literature, we look at these social enterprises as these hybrid organizations to have nothing else to do but day-to-day uh, -day thinking about how can we combine the economic with the social. Well, our research tells us that's very much our own interpretation. They are too busy to think about economic versus social and as a dichotomy. But nevertheless, there are some conflict zones. So take, for example, uh, ask, for example, a, a social enterprise, to whom do you feel accountable to? To the beneficiaries, to the capital providers. You ask them, to whom do you report? to the beneficiaries, to the capital providers. So that might actually create a conflict more in terms of a mandate and to be internally uh, uh, reconciled. Now, what was also striking is that uh, we often think about these social enterprises as service delivery. We were surprised, and I'll show you a little bit the evidence, how actively they were involved in shaping their institutional environment and engaged in the policy making and engaged in passing new laws. And finally, they are active in what I call the market for public purpose. They are, do not work in isolation, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Their role differs strikingly depending on in which domain they work health, education, arts, or also the country context. Now, when it comes down to the market for public purpose, let me just focus on, on, on finance, the sources of liquidity, interaction with government, and what we know about with whom they compete. It was striking for us how much selling your own products and, on, and uh, services was the main source of liquidity. Without that, they would not survive. Do you have some grants? Yes, because we also know that there are some public problems, social problems that have a, a, a very low willingness to pay. What we saw that it's only in China that you have significant investments as in terms of private equity in there. Donations hardly don't exist, so it's certainly not a charity case and also loans. Social enterprises cannot rely on loans, which actually tells you something that there is a failure in the banking system, that this is a, a, a customer segment that is not very well served. 
Interacting with the public sector. I just show you this because it shows how different the interaction with the government is in each and every country. In Hungary, it seems the case that the government is happy that someone is actually doing a, a social service delivery. In Portugal, our data show the commitment of the government to actually take this field of practice seriously and to force foster it. In China, you all also see government funding very low, not surprising, but the government is also increasingly happy if, you know, to, to take on some of the services and um, products delivered by social enterprises. Now, do these social enterprises compete? And with whom do they compete? Again, we are not talking about them in isolation. Well, the, the most important thing is in Almost, well, in none of these countries, they saw the government as a competitor. Actually, many, in many countries, they do work with the, the government, mainly also, as I told you, for in terms of selling their uh, product and services and also getting uh, funding. The patterns of competition vary strikingly. In China, Russia, and the United Kingdom, it's business who is seen as the competitors. In Germany, among others, it's non-for-profit organizations. In Spain, other social enterprises. 20% actually say, well, we don't face competition. And that probed us to understand what is unconventional and novel really about them. And I will uh, tell you a little bit about that. But paying attention to competition is important. Because what we also found is if you take a domain, let's say education or arts or um, housing, the likelihood that you incorporate the same legal form as your competitor is very high. So here, institutional theory is at its full force. But that's really just more on what type of legal form do they adopt in order also to signal legitimacy in the broader uh, field. Social enterprises, in short, are the Weltmeisters of collaboration. Only 1% in our sample didn't collaborate the year before, and Hungary and Russia are the absolute collaboration Weltmeisters also here, with whom they collaborate uh, dif differs. In China and Russia, it's for-profit organization. In Spain, UK, other social enterprises. In Portugal and Sweden, local authorities. Also here, interesting patterns, and obviously, as you can see, because of the heterogeneity variety, difficult to give the one and only recommendation to the European Union. Now, how to make sense of these social enterprises? Well, we are organizational theorists. We look at how do they do things. So we actually looked at how do they do things in terms of do they bring in their uh, beneficiaries and how they deliver services, how do they uh, fund, I mentioned it already, funding is very important, and so on. 80 different organizational features that we detected, and we tried to understand how they differ from each other, but also how, how do they differ from a simulated expected population of organizations in their countries. So this is now uh, the 
data that we, where we try to understand how conventional and novel these organizations are with respect to their local origins. And this is where we use the, the simulation for. If they are highly conventional but high novel, we call them Darwinist, high novel and low in conventionality, the avant-garde. Well, if you're low on novelty and low on conventionality, you're something like a platypus. You're probably very rare and close to extinction. And high conventional and low novelty is accepted wisdom. So this is how the, the, the social enterprises in our sample played out. You see a lot of avant-garde, the green ones. You see a lot of Darwinists, the yellow ones. And our call is to take these seriously because in the way they organize around a social problem might have uh, entail some innovation or different ways of doing that is very well suited to inform policy and new ways of, of addressing societal problems where we have not made much progress. I mentioned it before very strikingly how important this, this uh, ability to affect institutional change is by either influencing policy making or changing legislation. We ask them also where do they change uh, legislation at the national level or regional level, also here differences. Uh, the only country where you don't see much of influencing policy making is actually China. You see China strong in change legislation, but it has to do that this is the year they passed a new law on uh, foundations, actually. But what I'm, uh, what I'm heading to is that over these next two years at the Hertie School, you will become experts in mastering the policy process, develop a knowledge base in different policy fields. Our ambition is to make sure you will develop state-of-the-art analytical skills and enhance your ability to form good judgment. You will need both to effectively uh, tackle the challenge that is yours and to become the ch agent for change that you aspire to become. On that path, one word of wisdom, do not fall in love with the right solution. Ask the relevant questions to develop the appropriate solution in each situation. Your journey starts today, has started yesterday, and it is our privilege to be part of your journey. On behalf of the faculty of the Hertie School, welcome to the Hertie School family, and for all the others, welcome back home. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.